Well, good morning, church. It is uh, great to uh, worship our uh, King Jesus, our, our rock, with you today. Um, we have now come to the end of Romans chapter 9, and I thought it might be helpful for us to just kind of quickly review this, this chapter. And so I put in your notes, if you look in, in your listening guide, or I'm sorry, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see a, a little one-page listening guide. And I found this last week um, in uh, John Stott's commentary on Romans, just a great, uh, very precise summary of, of chapter 9 as we've gone through it these last five or six weeks, um, actually the last five weeks. So um, verse 1 through 5, and I'm just going to read verbatim what John Stott's written, and it's right there in your, in your guide. Um, but the very first sermon that we preached, um, I preached, I guess it was about a month ago or five weeks ago, um, Paul began this chapter with the paradox of Israel's privilege and prejudice. How can her unbelief be explained? Then uh, our brother Bill um, preached on verse 6 through 13. Stott writes, it is not because God is unfaithful to his promises, for he has kept his word in relation to the Israel within Israel. The spiritual Israel, right? Then the next section, verse 14 through 18, it is not because God is unjust in his purpose according to election, for neither his having mercy on some or his hardening of others is incompatible with his justice. This last week, we looked at verse 19 through 29. It's not because God is unfair to blame Israel or hold human beings accountable for we should not answer him back. And in any case, he has acted according to his own character and according to Old Testament prophecy. And this week, um, here's the summary of Paul's argument. It is rather that the reason that Israel has rejected their Messiah, it is rather because Israel is proud, pursuing righteousness in the wrong way, by works instead of faith, and so has stumbled over the stumbling block of the cross. Well, let's start by looking at what this text says about faith versus works. Verse 30 through 32. So I invite you to look there with me. Romans 9 chapter, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 9 verse 30. It's not fair. Kids, have you ever said that before? It's not fair. I'm pretty sure every single one of you who can speak has spoken those words. Um, in fact, I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room who can speak has spoken those words. Moms and dads, what did you say in response? Look at that, everybody. Life's not fair. Or, or maybe um, my mom put it this way, which frankly was worse, and that was different people get different things at different times. Man, I still got, I get a little PTSD whenever I hear that. Um, different, kids, have I ever said that to you? I have? Oh, man. Be careful, kids. What goes around comes around sometimes. The thing that you can't stand hearing, you might find yourself saying one day, right? Different people get different things at different times. Well, Paul says, verse 30, what shall we say then? And, and, and as he says this, Try to put yourself in the mind of an of a Israelite of his day, okay? Because this is just so unfair. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. John Stott referred to this as, quote, the upside-down religious situation of Paul's day. The Jews who pursued righteousness never reached it. The Gentiles who did not pursue it laid hold of it. The Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, but attained it. Now, you know, I want to just give a little background on some of these words here, okay? When we hear the word Gentile, I'm not sure that we have the same response that those who read this letter did, okay? Um, we think, yeah, that's us. Like the vast majority of us, we're not Jews, we're Gentiles. We think, well, non, 
Jews. Okay, um, great. Let's move on. But when, 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 the, when the Jews heard the word Gentile, okay, a synonym for Gentile was like pagan. Okay, kafir. Maybe you're familiar with that word. Um, I, I, I became very familiar with that word living in Afghanistan because I could hear the mullah a block away at the mosque preaching against me personally and against my family personally, calling us kafirs, telling everyone, don't go near that family. They're evil. They're pagans. They're unbelievers. They're kafirs. That's the way they've said it over there. They're, they're kafirs. And you know, I, I got to say, we, we were often trying to show our neighbors and everybody, listen, we're not as bad as you think. <laughs> you know, we, we, I'm faithful to my wife. I, I love my kids. Uh, I respect God. But, you know, maybe my, my tax should have been, amen, I'm a cuffer. I, I, I am a dog, uh, unholy and, and unrighteous before God, but dressed in Jesus' righteousness, so he accepts me. But that's, that's the power of these words. The, the Gentiles, these were the, the heathen, right? And the Jews, they didn't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls that do. And these coffers, they drank, smoked, and chewed, and they loved girls that do, and far, far worse. When Paul says they did not pursue righteousness, that's a massive understatement, okay? I have a book in my shelf called Daily Life in Ancient Rome. It's an academic book. Uh, let me tell you, some of that book is rated R, or worse if you understand how these people lived, Okay, these Gentiles, these Romans. I can't talk about it, frankly, because it wouldn't be appropriate. Some of you are under the age of 18. And frankly, we don't even want to think about some of the stuff that was normal, the way people lived. It, it was far more decadent than the way our godless culture is today. Let me just put it that way. All right. So the idea that things are just perpetually getting worse morally isn't necessarily true when you look at the broad scope of history, okay? Um, these folks were cruising through life, living lives of absolute hedonism, incredibly displeasing to God, breaking his moral law left and right, okay? And yet, Paul says they attained righteousness. Well, how in the world did they attain righteousness in God's sight? Well, the reason is they were, they were cruising through a godless life and someone came along and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with them and they believed it. Someone shared the gospel of Jesus with them. And the Holy Spirit arrested their heart such that they would believe, that they would repent and just believe God's grace. Now, I want to just make it clear, Paul is not referring here to all of the Gentiles, all of the Romans. He's, he's referring here to the Gentile Christians in the Roman church, okay, those who had repented and believed in Jesus. And it's interesting here, the word attained that he uses, okay, in Greek, it's, it's the word katalambano, which means to grasp or, or seize something with great vigor, almost violently. So it's, it's, it wasn't just casual, merely intellectual belief. Like, I'm going to add this to my worldview, and let's just keep cruising. They laid hold of righteousness by faith. This is true. They, they believed in Jesus. They believed the gospel with conviction. And like the, the former pagan who happened to become a, the father of the Jewish nation, Father Abraham, who was an idol-worshiping pagan before the Lord arrested his heart through his grace and, and made him this great father of the Jewish nation biologically and, and our spiritual father, all of us who are in Christ, they, like him, they believed God and it was accounted to them as righteousness. Well, why? Well, this is the beautiful doctrine of imputed righteousness that we, we hear when we read 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You've probably heard that a lot here. But I I hope you never stop saying, wow. We attain the righteousness of God. We actually become the righteousness of God. Not because we can earn it. Not because we deserve it. But simply because he gives it to us to be received through faith. So faith is not fair, but faith is wonderful. Christianity is not about doing all the right stuff or about being religious. You know, some of us, some of us have maybe, maybe grown up in the church and man, it's easy to get this idea that, hey, being a Christian is just about kind of showing up at church, doing the right things, right? Kind of looking like everybody else. But you don't get to heaven by being religious. You don't get to heaven You don't get into God's kingdom by being perfect. The the beautiful truth of the gospel is that God loves sinners. And he died for coffers. He died for pagans who did a lot of shameful things. People like you and me. Christianity is about knowing God through faith in Jesus. And that is good news for us. It's not about conformity to a certain social structure. Man, it's about knowing God through faith and having your sins forgiven and and having him cleanse your heart to where those things that bring you shame when you think about, you are able to stand before him without shame. And that's actually how our whole text ends. Right? If you look at the very end of Romans chapter 9, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. On that day, or even now, if you've confessed your sins to him. Last week, I preached on election. That's what we saw in the the verses before, in verses 19 through 29. But the Bible never says, try to figure out if you are one of the elect. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Israel zealously pursued the law, but they did not attain God's righteousness. Now, not all of the Jews rejected Jesus. All the disciples were Jews, right? Our great heroes of the faith of the book of Acts, right? were Jews who believed and went out there and turned the world upside down. So let's not forget that. But in general, the majority of God's covenant people of the Old Testament rejected their Messiah. And many of them were fanatics for the Mosaic law. They refused to trust in Jesus. They wanted to depend on their own power to keep God's commandments, and they failed. Why? Well, our text makes it very clear in verse 32, the second part. It says, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So, you know, we, we are used to hearing uh, in a Protestant church, in a, in a Baptist church, we, we, we're pretty used to hearing, I think, about faith versus works. And I, I think there's probably very few of us who, if any, who would say, yes, I, I am depending on my own righteousness, right? Um, I am, I'm just going to depend on, you know, let's go back to the you know, ceremonial law of God and try to earn heaven. I I don't think there's any of you who think that way. I hope not, okay? So it's easy to be kind of like, yeah, 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 I got it. You know, it's faith, not works. But I'd like for us to take some time this morning to consider some ways that we might allow works, Christianity, to infiltrate our our thinking and, and to come into our lives. You might say, well, I'm not a legalist. I'm not legalistic. Well, let's see, right? I know a few legalists who consider themselves such. Tradition. Tradition, tradition. I love that song. I love that movie. Um, Tradition over authentic worship, right? So you might be like, oh, yeah, come on, I'm not. You know, I don't 
wish we had a big giant pipe organ or whatever, you know. Um, but tradition for us is kind of the way we've always done it, the way we've seen it done, the way we've been brought up. Is that more important or is the authentic, passionate worship of Jesus Christ most important? Like, could you, could you totally have to do it different than you're used to and, and totally worship him? Projects or people. Dudes, I'll let you chew on that one, okay? Uh, how about knowing all the answers theologically, but in the same day, maybe, showing very little love to your family? Man, I've seen this just <laughs> wreck marriages. Um, man, especially when we even would use the Bible to justify a sinful attitude against a spouse. Uh, Lord, God, help us. Lord, God, I pray that you would help moms and dads to love each other, to submit to you, to honor one another. Father, protect our marriages. Forgive us for legalism where we've said one thing and spent all this time parsing out verses and theology and yet been totally godless in how we've related to our spouses. God, may our marriages shine the gospel to our kids, to the people who live on our street, to our church, to our, our, our town. Heal us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, how about this one? How we dress. You might be like, what are you talking about? Um, but the question really is, do we talk about the gospel but treat people differently based on how they look? Turn with me for a minute to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and the first five verses or so. We could actually keep reading because James waxes eloquently on this topic. James chapter 2. Verses 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. <laughs> right there, the Lord of glory. It's about Jesus, right? So therefore, that should translate in how you treat people. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And you could apply this in so many directions. Okay, I, I, I mean, I mentioned the word dress, like clothing, I hope, I grew up in a tradition, I mean, my parents wanted us to dress up. I mean, as a kid, I'm putting on a little tie, you know, a little clip-on tie to go to church. And that was, you know, the culture of the day um, and fine. Um, but the, and the, the, the whole point behind that was, hey, we, we need to look our best to go and worship God. And, and there is some truth, I think, maybe, to the statement that you tend to act to a degree to the you know, how you're dressed, maybe. But man, let us not become partial. So if, if somebody shows up in, in uh, you, know, uh, you know, surfing attire, let's love them. Or shows up with a, a mohawk or, or dressed however, and if we treat them at all differently or, or don't go and talk to them because they look different, shame on us. We're, we're, against, we're going against God's word. We, we don't wear shorts here. That mindset, let's, let's, and I think we've probably come a long way, honestly, as, as a church there. Um, so I want you to dress however you feel comfortable. We're not going to persecute anybody for wearing a suit, okay? We're not going to persecute anybody for wearing a t-shirt. We're here to worship Jesus, right? But this goes way beyond dress. It's talking about people who are different than us, socioeconomically, perhaps. The skin of their, their of the, uh, the color of their skin. Um, their, their, their cultural background, where they're from. 
We are not to give in to the sin of partiality. James says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? We, we are so blessed. Um, we are so blessed. And you know, um, you know, some of you ladies just you know, like to dress up, and that, and that can be a God-glorifying thing. Um, but let's be sure that it doesn't become a, a, a beauty pageant here where someone who maybe doesn't have as much fine clothing feels like they, they can't quite fit in. I'm not even smart enough or sophisticated to notice really, to be honest with you, or, or know the differences, but some of you are. So let's just be careful that it doesn't become a beauty contest, right? Um, but that we're, we're here to encourage one another, ladies, as sisters in Jesus. Uh, I do know that I've, I've had the chance to spend time with people who didn't feel comfortable coming to Rocky and they told me that they didn't have enough nice clothes. Okay, here's another one. Are we deep in our theology but shallow in our love for the underdog? Remember, God loves the underdog. I mean... Throughout the Bible, God stands up for the underdog. For, for the person who perhaps has been picked on, who doesn't quite fit in. Could be for all kinds of reasons. Dr. Mika Edmondson, pastor of New City Presbyterian Church, which is an Orthodox Presbyterian church in Grand Rapids, delivered a message to the Gospel Coalition four years ago looking at the Black Lives Matter movement. Before it was quite as, I think, big uh, a headliner as it is now. Okay, looking at the movement. Now, regarding the statement, Black Lives Matter, not the movement, but the statement, he wrote this. Before we go any further, I just want to clear up a common misconception about the Black Lives Matter sentiment. Black Lives Matter does not mean Black Lives Matter only. It means black lives matter too. It's a contextualized statement, like saying children's lives matter. That doesn't mean adult lives don't matter. But in a culture that demeans and disparages them, we understand we have to say forthrightly and particularly that children's lives matter. In the face of historic and contemporary context, that has uniquely disparaged black life as not worth valuing or protecting in the same way as others, they are saying black lives matter just as much as every other life. Ironically, saying black lives matter is really a contextualized way of saying all lives matter, end quote. If you'd like to chew on those words a little bit or think about that a little bit more, I, I, I would be, email me. I'd be glad to send you the whole article. It's actually a sermon this pastor preached. Um, now, I want to say this. I have looked at the Black Lives Matter, I'm sorry, the organization Black Lives Matter's website. And I have looked at their platform. And I see some major biblical problems. They are unapologetically pro-abortion, and that means they don't believe that all black lives matter. They are rabidly pro-LGBTQ and also anti-government, specifically police, okay? And Romans 13 tells us that we are to respect and honor our governing authorities. And also, I see sentiments of anti-biblical family structure within the organization. So there's no way that as a gospel-believing, Bible-believing disciple of Jesus Christ or pastor, I can endorse the organization. But I can say unequivocally that black lives matter. They matter to me. They matter to God. Because the Lord created each black life beautifully in his own image. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for black lives. And I believe our church would be stronger if we had more black lives as, a, as members of Rocky. And if, if we had more Hispanics and more Asians. 
we would be stronger. We would be reflective of what we see in Revelation 17, which is the culmination. Romans, uh, Revelation 7, not 17, right? I mean, and in a sense, that's what's going on in heaven right now. May, may, Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed, Lord, may, may, may your kingdom be real here on earth as it is in heaven, right? At, at least to the point that we reflect the realities of our, of, our, of our town, right? The demographics. And I realize we're a more homogenous town, but we have a, a wonderful military that's brought in folks from all over the world and, and, and all over our country. Uh, I wish we were more unified in representation in terms of how we looked than our town. That would be a beautiful testimony to the unity of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I believe that it is a shame that the Black Lives Matter organization is standing up for a cause that we as the church have failed to champion. Now I realize that getting up here and saying this isn't entirely popular because maybe not, I hope it is, but boy, this thing's become so political. And I don't like stirring the pot or getting angry emails. Um, But I just want to tell you, if you disagree with me, it's not just me. Okay, Dr. Al Mohler, if you want to stand up against him, okay, you can. Uh, He said this. He reviewed and responded to this article that Dr. Edmondson wrote and preached, and and he he just applauded and repented himself for Southern Seminary's racist history and background. Interestingly enough, he talked about, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one, when he, you know, what was so beautiful in comparison to the Black Lives Matter movement with the Civil Rights Movement is that the Civil Rights Movement was based on the authority of Scripture and Creator God creating all people in His image equally. But, but Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't allowed to go study at a conservative biblical seminary because of racism in our, within our heritage. And, and I praise God that the Southern Baptists have confessed that and, and asked God to forgive them and have asked forgiveness of our African-American brothers and sisters for our racist past. I mean, we started that way. We started because we wanted to send missionaries with slaves to the American West. That's why we started. I mean, that was one of the planks of our beginnings. And so what, that is something to repent from. And, and he did. And Al Mohler, in, his, in, this, in, a, in an article he wrote four years ago, um, um, uh, in response to um, our brother, um, Dr. Edmondson, um, Dr. Dr. Moeller said his argument is that Black Lives Matter is judgment on the Christian church, which it surely is. The rise of Black Lives Matter points to the failure of the Christian church to make the cause of human dignity and racial equality our own. So in the void... Groups that don't have biblical foundations will, will still see some truth and, and, and stand up for it in the wrong way. Dr. Edmondson helps make it personal for us. He writes, we, we know our failure to speak and act in the face of blatant race-based injustices 60 years ago has had a devastating effect on the local church today. Our denominations, churches, and seminaries continue to reveal patterns of ethnic homogeneity and exclusivity that do not fully express the glory of the unity for which Christ prayed in John 17, the high priestly prayer, and defended in Mark 11, that he's talking about when Jesus drove out the the people who had turned the, the temple into the marketplace. And what we sometimes don't realize is that that was the court of the Gentiles, that, that they had turned into a marketplace. Where they were, so they, they'd so devalued the nations, people who are different, being able to come in and worship God, that they had turned that into a big bazaar. And, and so when Jesus drove them out in Mark 11, he said, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for the nations? So we, we tend to think when we read that story that's just Jesus defending God's honor, and he was. But he was defending the honor of of, ethnic, of minorities there at the temple trying to worship God. So apply that to our lives today, okay? Now I'm gonna continue here. Sorry, I, had, I just got sidetracked for a minute. Um, let me start over here, last, last sentence here. Boy, it's a long sentence, eloquent sentence. Let me try here. Our denominations, churches, and seminaries continue to reveal patterns of ethnic 
homogeneity and exclusivity that do not express fully the glory of the unity for which Christ prayed in John 17 and defended in Mark 11 and for which he died. Racial hatred and disobedience has often gone unrepented, unchecked, and in some cases even more deeply entrenched in the church than in the world. I mean, there are churches where our brothers and sisters from other backgrounds do not feel welcome. I'm, I'm getting off of the soapbox again. Um, I pray that ours is a place where you do. But let's work together to, to be more welcoming. Back in the spirit of James, just know that water flows in the path of least resistance. So we naturally go and talk to people who look like us or we think have the same background or values. We do. It's just more natural to go talk to somebody who's a, you know, if you're a mom, who's a homeschooling mom. If you're a military guy, who's a, who's a military, you know, someone with a similar background. So if you see somebody coming in who looks a little different, whether it's they look different ethnically or they, they look different in how they're dressed or, or whatever, you, I want to encourage you to like, just hit the delete button because uh, I know we all show up and we have people we want to talk to and, you know, I, hey, I need to talk to so-and-so about curriculum or I need to talk to so-and-so about plans this week. Just delete that. You can email them or call them later and go talk to the person who's different because they're not. One race, one blood in Christ, right? Okay, let me see if I can find my place here. Dr. Edmondson. Liberal churches and seminaries are aligned with the casualties of conservative hypocrisy as morally conscious young people and many ethnic minorities look for theologies with a robust enough social ethic to speak to the obvious suffering they experience and see all around them. This is the fruit of simply ignoring these issues. Refusal to address Racialized sin has undermined our capacity to fulfill our Romans 12:15 calling to mourn with those who mourn. The unique calling of the church as opposed to the institutions of the world is not simply to tolerate one another or even simply to understand one another, but to mourn with one another and bear one another's burdens. If you are so entrenched in your socio-political camp that you can't shed some tears with Tanisha, something is deeply wrong. Because that's who the church is called to be. That's the kind of thing that makes our unity in Christ really conspicuous and causes people to see that there's a unique power at work in the church unlike anything in the world. End quote. Brothers and sisters, we have, we have the Bible. We, we have the gospel the, the Word of God says a lot about the sin of racism, which is really the sin of partiality. And it gives us the cure to that, which is what? One word. What's the cure? It's love. That's right. Let's be sure that we're not guilty of loving in word or talk only. Let's love in truth. Right? Let's love in, in truth with, with action, with, with our hearts, with how we respond to people, how we treat people. Oh, man, it's a beautiful thing. We, we can diffuse a lot of, of hurt with, with love. All right, part two. Uh, I promise part one was longer than part two will be. Stumbling stone. Look at verse 32b. You might want to turn back there. Um, page in my Bible, which is the same as the Pew Bible, the ESV, it's page 946. Romans chapter 9, verse 32. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as, as it were, based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So this is an illustration that Paul gives us. And at first, I was kind of like, that's interesting. What does he mean? Um, but you know, recently, Beth and I were out west hiking near Mount Rainier. And I had probably been um, uh, maybe a little too, we had we'd been hiking all day doing some other stuff. And, but you know, it, I thought, hey, we, let's get one more in. You know, one more little day hike. It's only like four or five miles. The only thing is it was like straight up 
maybe about 1,500 feet to get to a ridge. And, uh, and, and, and someone had told us, hey, you, there's, a, there's a killer view of Mount Rainier from up there. You know, so we're, we're going off the switchbacks, and I'm starting to realize, okay, um, maybe I'm pushing it a little too hard here with my wife, you know, 20th anniversary. Um, um, but anyway, you know, she was a great sport. We keep hiking. And, and so, you know, about two hours went by, and all we saw was a canopy of trees. Kept hiking, hiking, hiking. And then suddenly, boom, there it was, this vista of Mount Rainier in all its glory, you know. Uh, but there was, a, there was a pile of rocks. For, for our illustration, let's say it was one rock. But it was really a pile of rocks, and that was really kind of into the trail right there. Now, if we had been so intent about getting to Mount Rainier, you know, I'm, I'm getting to Mount Rainier. And, and, and if we had just kind of ignored those rocks, we would have stumbled right over it, and it would not have been pretty. In fact, I mean, there, there's a kind of a cliff right at the other side of those rocks. You had to be kind of careful when you got up on them, even. Actually, it was a cliff, one kind of a cliff. It was probably about, I don't know, 100 feet, 150 feet. It wouldn't have been pretty, okay? Um, so, so that's the illustration that we have here, okay? The rock is Christ that, that Paul gives us in this illustration. So why do some people stumble over Christ as they insist on trusting in their own religion and righteousness? Well, the answer is, is one word, and, and that's pride, that the gospel of Jesus Christ exposes and it explodes our self-righteousness, our self-sufficiency. I want to get there on my own. I'm going to get to that mountain. And instead of standing on the rocks, we, we just try to cruise past or cruise over and this, it becomes a stumbling stone for us. The truth is that none of us are basically mostly good. We can't get to heaven by our own religiosity or, or good works. So Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24, and he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, in this, in this text from Romans 9, Paul kind of, he, he actually took a um, illustration from Isaiah. He quotes together uh, Isaiah 28 and Isaiah chapter 8 to, to bring this together. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Either you, you stand on the rock of Christ or you kick your feet against it and you trip and stumble and, and end up being destroyed. Well, why is Jesus a stumbling block to uh, the religious or to the Jews? Well, it's because, you know, Paul, Paul said that the, the proclamation of the gospel was the stumbling block. In fact, the Greek word for stumbling block is skandalon. The skandalon, the scandal for Jews. And it was ridiculousness. It was folly for unbelieving Gentiles. And I think about how true that is today. Because, hey, our culture is far more Gentile than first century Jew, right? So the idea that God is sovereign, that God demands holiness, the idea that something's wrong with us, now that's a laughingstock, right? That's, that, that gets mocked in our culture today. And, and you know, the Jews believe those things. They just wanted to do it on their own, through their own religious power. They didn't want to give up the Mosaic law. So on your journey through life, you will encounter Jesus Christ, the rock. Will you, will you stumble over him? Or will you stand on him? And that leads us to our conclusion. Part three, cornerstone. The obvious answer is that we, we Christians stand on Jesus, the rock. That means that all of our trust is in him and that we build our life on him. He is our controlling authority, the cornerstone. In Matthew 7, Jesus said that those who hear his word and obey it are like a wise man who built his life on the rock. And so Jesus, a cornerstone, we, you might be familiar with that, you know, in, in some older buildings, the, the first big stone that's laid is considered the cornerstone. But in our architecture today, that's mostly symbolic. Okay, but in, in Jesus' day, the, the, there was a, a stone, a big rock that was the foundation that, that the whole structure depended on, or even sometimes it would be arches, 
like you're familiar with Roman stone arches. There'd be a, a big central key stone right up in the top middle that the entire arch leaned on and depended on. And that, that's what gave the arch its integrity. And so that's, that's really what I think gives us light here to Jesus' statement in, in Luke 20. When he said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken in pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You may think, well, how does the cornerstone of a building fall on someone? Well, the cornerstone of an arch, if, it, if the whole thing collapsed, uh, would crush and would kill someone. And so all of the structure of our lives must rest on him. He is the one who holds all things together. That's what we sung this morning when we sung the song, God of the Ages. We, we sung, he is the first, the last, the one who matters most. He is creator, ruling sustainer of all. He holds it all together. He is the word of God, the hope for all the world. His name is lifted higher. Jesus, your name is lifted higher. May that be true, truly, in our lives this week, in our thinking, in, in what we say, in what we listen to, in, in our attitudes. May it be all about Christ and all from Christ. You know, Jesus only gives two options. You either stand on him and depend on him, or you kick against him and you're crushed. So what does it mean to stand on the rock, our cornerstone, Jesus? Well, I think Galatians 2.20 summarizes that well. Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Do you get that? An, an empty vessel. I am his. I'm not going to allow my culture to define my worldview. The word of God, Jesus Christ, defines my worldview. The new life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm not depending on my righteousness, my religiosity. I'm depending on Jesus, that he died on the cross for my sins. The ones I know about, the ones I don't know about. He paid it all and I am trusting in him alone and that means I'm going to follow him and I'm going to keep repenting and I'm going to keep believing in him. So brothers and sisters, don't just stand on the rock. Build your life on the rock. We do this individually, and we do this together, corporately. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he said, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom a whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, our, our society is sick. I mean, our country, our, our world is hurting right now, okay? Um, <laughs> COVID-19 has brought the world to its knees, and there's so many other things popping up. As people are stressed and exhausted and tired and fearful, our, our society is sick and hurting right now. And it's breaking my heart to see the polarization going on. Everybody's mad at everybody. About three weeks ago, I deleted Facebook off of my phone. And man, did I need the break. So by the way, if you've like sent something to me or whatever and I haven't responded it's not that I don't like you I just haven't seen it uh, I haven't looked at it um, I'm sorry by the way I did look at our church's Facebook page a couple days ago and I realized that we've been um, neglectful there we haven't been doing a good job and we're going to try to do a better job um, while we were all at home we were really trying to amp that up and honestly in the last month probably a lot of that's because I wasn't looking at it um, we haven't really done anything but we're, we're going to try we're going to try to get a little better there um, but let me tell you um, my heart was often broken by stuff I saw, Christians from both, from different perspectives, putting on Facebook. We have a, people are just upset and there's battle lines and camps. 
Brothers and sisters, we have the unity of being joined together by the cornerstone. Right? I mean, if Jesus is the cornerstone, we have to be unified. You can't not be if he's really the cornerstone. So let's focus on him right now. Let's really put our gaze on him right now. And instead of like, what happens is, I mean, people shoot arrows over each other's head or at each other, but because they're not listening. And it's like, wait a minute, that sounds like this camp. You know, you're, you're, you're saying that racism is still a problem. Are you, you know, does that mean you're critical race theory? You know, and, and we start, we set up straw man arguments and attack and, and, and instead of listening, and instead of being humble. Let's focus on Jesus and follow him by taking the lower position and, and by putting each other above ourselves. My heart was gladdened, even though I dislike them desperately, masks. My heart was gladdened to see the vast majority of you wearing masks to church because I know you're doing it out of love. We, we have people in this room right now who, who couldn't come if we didn't do this. You know that? I mean, I, I don't know if he's here. I want to be careful what I say. Um, I got an email from Rick Kuka who thanked me that we're being so careful. And he said, you know, I haven't been coming to church, not because I'm listening, I'm with you every week. But I'm praying that maybe this next week will be the week they let me in to see my wife. It's been over 100 days and I haven't been coming to church because I, I don't want to do anything that might endanger her or make it impossible for me to go see her. But because y'all are being so careful, I, I'm going to try to come. Man, I'll wear a hazmat suit to church if that means people can come who couldn't otherwise. And we have some folks right on the, on the, on the, on the edge, who, some who haven't come. Some of you who are here now, and I know you're here, and I can point you out, but because we're being careful. Does that make sense? So thank you for taking the lower position. That's what you're doing, or I pray you're doing. I mean, believe me, you could wear a mask and do it for the wrong reason, too. Could be fear or whatever, you know. But, but I know we, we elders have, we started out by saying, um, hey, optional, that we'll have them. Um, as the science came out, as our, governor, as our governor asked us to do this, he, thankfully he hasn't mandated, he's got a lot of pressure on him, but he, he's asked us, hey, look, if you can't socially distance, if you're inside, please wear a mask. Our, our county health department's asked us specifically, like said, Rocky Bay Baptist Church, please do this, Okay. Um, but the real reason for me is, I mean, I want to protect, protect you guys from something I might not only have. I want people to be able to come to church who wouldn't otherwise be able to come to church. So thank you for humbling yourself, maybe, if you're of the camp that doesn't like masks. Um, that's being a Christian, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying masks are Christian, non no masks aren't. Like, what you do at Home Depot is up to you, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> I don't, I mean, well, if I show up at Home Depot, I'm probably not wearing a mask. If you do, that's awesome, okay, if you do it for love. But when you show up here wearing them for love, bless the Lord, and please keep doing it. We're, just to be clear, we elders have said we're asking you to please wear masks, okay, to church, um, so that we can continue and out of love for people. So please do it. Thank you. Thank you for being submissive there and for loving each other in this way. Let's let the world know that Jesus is Lord by our love. And we have the answer to the fear of death. We have the answer to the plague of partiality that has infected our country's past and still lingers and frankly is everywhere that I've been we have the answer to the sin of pride we have the gospel of Jesus Christ so now is our time in a time in which our our country's going crazy and people are angry and are stressed out and fearful and mad I mean looking at the news is just depressing I mean Everything's partisan now. I mean, I, I don't, don't matter whether you're looking at CNN or Fox News, it's hard to find anything that's even remotely, even remotely non-biased or non-partisan. People are just angry and mad and camps everywhere. We have the answer. I mean, if, if, if we don't, what are we doing here? We have the answer, and that is the gospel. 
It's salvation through faith in Jesus and the love that he gives us for one another, even people of different opinions or perspectives. It's humility and, and love and hope. And now is our time to share the gospel in word and in deed. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus. He is our hope. Give us his love for those who've done us wrong, for those who've treated us poorly or falsely accused us or misunderstood us or not included us. Lord, help us triumph through the gospel. Father, if there's anybody in this room, and I know there are, who don't yet have a true heart-level relationship with you through faith in Jesus, today, would you save them? Give them eyes to see the glory of, of God in a man, in a Jew, a guy who frankly looked different than we do, most of us, and yet who gave himself on the cross for us, who took our sins on himself, so we might be made right with you. Lord, make us right with you through him. God, save souls in our midst. Lord, open our mouths to be honest and loving, truthful and brave with our neighbors. May we find ways to point them to Jesus Christ. May we do it, not just talk about it, but do it. Change us, Lord, make us more like Jesus. In his name I pray, amen.